0: Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had in your lifetime an interaction with someone where no matter how you try and say what it is that you have to say, it just does not land with that person? Uh, The person you're trying to speak to will just not accept what it is that you have to say. I suspect that if you've interacted with enough people in your lifetime, uh, you will have had some kind of experience like that. So you you take different approaches, you try and be uh, gracious and winsome, and it doesn't really land. Or you try and be more direct maybe, but again, what you're saying simply falls on deaf ears. I think one of the areas where we feel this the most is when we try and share our faith with other people. It doesn't really seem to matter often what approach we take. What we're trying to say about Jesus just does not land with people. Uh, they don't want to hear it. And it's as if we're met with this kind of brick wall response. And it's in those moments where we try and share something that's important to us with people and they don't want to hear it, it's in those moments where it can be hard for us to justify what it is that we believe as Christians. And it can also be uh, very discouraging. Well, if that's an experience that you've ever had uh, in your life, um, can I tell you this morning that you're in very good company? Because that is the exact same thing that Jesus faced from the people in his day. And yet, far from being discouraged, Jesus wants you and wants me this morning to be reassured, as he puts it in verse 19 of our passage, that wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, it's not people's response to Jesus that proves who he is. It's Jesus' deeds that prove who he is. And belief in Jesus is justified even when it feels even when it seems like other people don't want to hear it. So Jesus has something to say to us this morning. But Let's pray, shall we, before we uh, dig into this passage to hear from him. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for the blessing it is to be uh, here this morning, uh, gathered as your people, and to have your word opened. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be among us and that you would minister to us. We pray that you would give us understanding of this passage, but more than that, Lord, we pray that you would exalt Jesus, for it's in his name that we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've broken our passage this morning into two uh, parts, kind of naturally. Verses 16 to 19, Jesus draws a comparison, and in verses 20 to 24, uh, Jesus, I've actually forgotten what I've said, Jesus gives a warning. Uh, Jesus draws a comparison. And then Jesus uh, gives a warning. And our passage this morning begins, verse 16, with Jesus asking a question and drawing a comparison. Uh, Verse 16, Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? To what can I compare this generation? I don't know if you uh, ever had the experience at school of studying uh, Shakespeare If you have had the experience of studying Shakespeare, you'll probably remember that it was deadly dull, and you spent most of your time in class uh, wondering, what is this guy talking about Uh, half the time? But every now and again, you would come across a piece of gold, and I remember at school coming across Sonnet 18, and Sonnet 18 was like a gold mine. This is what uh, Shakespeare wrote, and he was writing to his lover, and he said this, he said, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate. I remember reading those words and thinking, you know, this Shakespeare guy, he's got something going for him. He's got some decent chat-up lines anyway. But in our passage this morning, Jesus uh, draws a comparison, but unlike Shakespeare, it's not a particularly flattering comparison that he draws. Look at verse 16. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Jesus compares his listeners to children who are whinging because people aren't playing their game their way. So the scene he describes in verse 17 is a group of children sitting in the marketplace and they're playing a game. It's not a timeless classic like Cops and Robbers, Cowboys and Indians. They're playing a game of weddings and funerals and the children are sitting around and they're expecting the rest of the world to revolve around their little game. Uh, They play their game, and then they complain because other people aren't stopping to join in. It's not a a flattering comparison that Jesus draws. Jesus says that the people of his day, his generation, are like sulking children. And as we hear Jesus draw that comparison and give his kind of assessment of his generation, uh, it leads to a really natural question, which maybe you're asking already. And that is, would he say that of our generation? Would there be any basis for that kind of assessment of our society today? Well, in order to answer that, we need to look at why Jesus gave this comparison, why he drew it, and see how that fits with our generation. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Jesus first addresses how people of his day responded to John the Baptist Uh, John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was like the warm-up act in a concert, getting you ready for the main act to come on the stage. And because he was the forerunner of Jesus, he had a particular message. And his message was urgent and it was very serious. He basically told people that they needed to recognize their sin and they needed to turn back from it back to God in repentance. And because John's message was an urgent and a serious one, he adopted a kind of lifestyle that reflected the message that he was preaching. We're told that he came neither eating or drinking. That doesn't mean he was starving. It just meant that he didn't indulge in the finer things of life. His lifestyle was intense. And the reason it was intense was to highlight the urgency and the seriousness of what he was trying to communicate to people through his message well, how did John the Baptist and his ministry go down? Uh, Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Uh, His message did not land. The people of his day did not want to hear it. It was met with this kind of brick wall response. And in fact, it was much easier for people uh, in John's day to just ridicule him, to write him off uh, as a nutcase. And so they said, he's got a demon. He's got a demon. Uh, They rejected John the Baptist because basically he did not dance to their tune and he didn't play their silly game. You can just imagine people's conversations uh, about John the Baptist over the dinner table. You know, John the Baptist, he's he's much too serious. He's very gloomy, isn't he? Uh, He's a bit mad, if you think about it. That's how they responded to John. But what about Jesus? How did they respond to the main thing, Jesus? How did they respond to him? Verse 19, the son of man, came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, John's lifestyle reflected something of his message, and Jesus' lifestyle reflected something of his message too. Uh, You'll remember from um, our previous series, one of the ways that Jesus spoke uh, about life with God was describing it like a feast. Uh, He said that whenever you invite someone back into relationship with God, it's a bit like inviting them to a big banquet or party. It's like inviting them uh, to a feast. And in order to reinforce this message that Jesus is inviting all people to this feast in heaven with God, Jesus did eat and he did drink. Uh, He wasn't characterized by John's abstinence. And it was right for Jesus to eat and drink because it was a picture almost of the kind of amazing feast that could be enjoyed with uh, God in heaven that he was inviting people to. Well, if the people didn't like John in his fasting, how do you think they responded to Jesus in his feasting? Well, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, They rejected Jesus. Uh, They wrote him off as being unspiritual. Uh, Again, you can just imagine the conversations. You know, Jesus, he's, he's very indulgent. He's very worldly isn't he? And he keeps uh, bad company. He hangs out with the wrong sort. They wouldn't accept John when he spoke about repentance, and they wouldn't accept Jesus when he spoke about free forgiveness. And as one commentator uh, summarizes, I think really helpfully, this is what one commentator says about this passage. Many of those living during the ministry of Jesus are like children who whine when others won't play their silly game and complain when God's word offends their ears. They reject both lamentation and celebration. But in attributing sin to John and Jesus and not themselves, they show themselves to be fools while ignoring the very wisdom of God standing right in front of them. I think that's really well put. And the truth is that Jesus is justified by his deeds. It doesn't matter whether he fits the tune of the day. It doesn't matter whether the people that he's speaking to responded in unbelief. Jesus is justified by what he does. Uh, the burden is not on Jesus to dance to whatever tune is fashionable. No, the burden is on everyone else to see Jesus, to see his deeds, his life, and to understand who he is. Remember I asked you to think about our generation. What about our generation? What would Jesus say to us? Well, we live in a time don't we where unbelief, is thought of as very uh, sophisticated. Unbelief is very intelligent a lot of the time. Unbelief is very well-informed. Unbelief is celebrated. Uh, Unbelief wins awards. And yet Jesus, in this passage, he says that unbelief is childish and foolish. And if you think about it, in our generation, uh, you and I, we have the works of Christ recorded for us Uh, in the Bible. We have reliable accounts of what he did, but actually we have more than the original people who were listening to Jesus here in Matthew 11. They had seen his miracles, they had seen his life, and yet you and I, we live the other side of the great miracle to which all of Jesus' little miracles pointed forward to, namely his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so if they were uh, to respond in the right way to Jesus, how much more ought you and I, having seen the deeds of Jesus recorded in the Bible, how much more ought we to respond rightly to him? Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says this, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, that's Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What Jesus does shows him to be the very wisdom of God. And you and I, we need to be wise in how we relate to Jesus. We do not sit in judgment over him. He sits in judgment over us. What you and what I think of Jesus isn't the most important thing. Now, the most important thing is what Jesus thinks of you and I. And so we see in our passage that Jesus draws a comparison. Uh, It's not a particularly flattering comparison, but it's an important one, because he wants us to see the unbelief of those in his generation, and he doesn't want us to do the same thing. Well, Jesus moves on then in verse 20 to 24, uh, and he gives a warning. Jesus gives a warning. Let's read those verses 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tar and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tar and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles had been performed in you, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus denounces uh, three cities. uh, And the reason that he denounces these cities is because they do not repent in response to his life and his ministry. And in verse 20 there, you'll see that he singles out three uh, cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And the reason he singles out these three cities is because those were the places where he had performed the bulk of his miracles during his life. Uh, if you know on uh, TV and the football matches when they show you the heat maps of where the players have been around the pitch during the match, if you were doing that for Jesus' life, then those three cities would have been the places where, uh, that were growing red hot because Jesus had, had done his miracles there. Uh, these three cities, they were upright, uh, they were respectable, they were very religious places, and yet Jesus denounces them in the strongest possible way. And the question is Why? why does he denounce these cities in particular? Well, it's because they had seen the miracles of Jesus, and yet they had not repented. And I think that's very striking. Jesus says, look, you've seen an enormous amount of evidence. You've seen my miracles right in front of your eyes, but you have not believed. And I think it's striking because oftentimes, I don't know if you find this, But when I'm chatting to people, they will complain and say things like, you know, if God just made himself clearer, if God turned up this morning at church, if he did a miracle right in front of my eyes, well, then I would believe. But this passage suggests that actually it's not a lack of evidence that is the main uh, cause of their unbelief. Uh, No, it's actually their attitude of their heart that is the cause of their unbelief. Over the new year, uh, we had some friends around to our house uh, for a bit of a catch up, old school friends. Um, And after we had our meal, we were all sitting around um, just kind of chatting, catching up. And one of the the couples, the conversation turned to New Year's resolutions. And one of the couples uh, talked about how they wanted to quit smoking in the new year. And as they were talking about wanting to quit smoking, uh, one of our other friends, who's a doctor, uh, began to outline all of the evidence for why they should, uh, in fact, uh, stop smoking. And as I was sitting listening to the conversation, it was slightly surreal Because you realize that actually, as he was outlining all this evidence, that wasn't really the point. Uh, They knew the evidence, they knew it wasn't that good for them, but they just enjoyed having a smoke. It wasn't the lack of evidence, it was just that there was an addiction at play. And in every single human heart, in every single person here this morning, we have an addiction in our hearts to living the way we want to. Uh, According to Jesus, the issue is not the lack of evidence The issue is the unbelief that resides in each of our hearts, in the heart of every single human being. It's not that the people in those three cities could not see the truth. It's that they would not see the truth. And there is nobody so blind as those who will not see the truth. And this is what the Bible teaches, isn't it? The Bible teaches that when someone comes to think about Jesus Christ and the Christian faith, our hearts are not neutral. We don't come with an open mind. Uh, Our natural inclination is towards unbelief. Uh, Romans 8, 7 says that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. And that's what we see at play here with Jesus. These people, they saw the miracles, they looked, and then they just got on with life without Jesus. And in order to show how shocking that response was, Jesus puts it in perspective in verses 21 and 23. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Tyre and Sidon and in Sodom, in verse 24, uh, they were the epitome of evil. But Jesus says, verse 24 or 22, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for these cities. And verse 24, it'll be more bearable for Sodom than for these cities on the day of judgment. You see, at the end of the day, what matters more than how respectable, or how religious, or how moral, or how upright we might seem, is actually how we use the opportunities God gives us to respond to him, to turn back to him, and to repent. The sins of Sodom, as awful as they were, and they were awful, and they were obvious, they pale in comparison to the hard-hearted, unrepentant, unbelief of these cities. And as you read these verses, they can be quite hard to read, but you also get this idea from Jesus that on the Day of Judgment, it will be worse for some people than for others. And yet, surprisingly, he says, it's going to be worse on the Day of Judgment for these self-righteous cities than for these sinful cities. Uh, you and I, I think we we know this idea of... Um, Of how uh, we ought to respond to the knowledge that we have. Jesus seems to say to them that because they know more about him, because they have seen more, they are more responsible to respond in the right way. The more you know, the more responsible you are to respond in the right way. And we understand that principle. I don't know if you've had the opportunity uh, to watch that program, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. Uh, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, it recounts uh, the post office scandal where basically there was a faulty software called Horizon, and it led to some people being falsely accused of stealing money from the post office. Some of them were imprisoned, some of them took their own lives, and some lives and livelihoods were just ruined. Uh, It's a really powerful TV series on ITV, but it's also been all over the newspapers. And a lot of the questions being asked in the newspapers are like this, who is responsible? Who is to blame? And there's different theories. So some people say, is it the post office leadership? Is it the tech company? Is it the government? There's all these ideas, but the assumption is that the more that was known, the more responsibility there was to respond in the right way. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, the more you know, the more you've seen, the more that's been revealed to you, the more responsible you are to respond to me in the right way. Rejecting God is serious. Rejecting God when you've had lots of opportunities to respond well that's very serious because with great knowledge great revelation comes great responsibility it's interesting isn't it that as jesus performs these miracles what is it that he's looking for what was he looking from the people of his day and what is he looking from us from you and i today he's not looking for applause he's not looking for adulation he's looking for repentance The miracles of Jesus were a bit like God ringing the doorbell to say, I have arrived, my kingdom is here. And if God has revealed himself in Jesus, which he has, then you and I, we need to turn from our sin and we need to turn to God in repentance. If our response is unrepentance, then Jesus says, woe to us. Woe to the city of Bangor in its unbelief. For if the people of this city too sophisticated to look at the works of jesus and consider what they mean too self-righteous to see the sin that they need forgiven then these people will says jesus be sent to hell i don't want to pretend that this is an easy thing for us to hear this morning it's not i bet it seems a million miles away from what you were thinking about this morning whenever you got out of bed and yet these are important things to hear There also might be some of you here this morning who hear these kind of things, these warnings, talk of the day of judgment of hell and heaven and think that this is offensive or that it's manipulative. Well, if that's you, well, can I encourage you to direct your fence at the right person? Uh, These are not my thoughts on life. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And there was nobody who spoke with more frequency, more vigor, and more authority on matters of judgment and matters of hell than Jesus Christ and the reason he gives us this warning this morning is not because he hates us the reason he gives us this warning this morning is because he loves us he loves you and he wants you to respond in the right way as we finish I read a story years ago of a a student newspaper in England And basically, the the University Christian Union had kicked up a bit of a fuss with one of the speakers that had been invited to speak. Basically, I think they spoke about judgment and hell. And the newspaper wrote this big expose, and they kind of said, you know, this is so backward, it's so last century, you know, this is not something that should happen today. It was the usual kind of thing that people say when we talk about Jesus. And one of the professors who was uh, working in the university, professor of physics, they wrote a little response to this student newspaper, And this is what they wrote. They said, dear editor, in the lab where I work, there is an electricity cupboard with a high voltage supply. And on the outside, someone has put up a sign saying, danger, keep out. As far as I know, nobody has complained about the person who put that sign up as being bigoted or nasty. I think most students on our campus recognize that a warning of real danger is a kind and a gracious thing. And so these words of Jesus this morning, these are some of the most loving words of Jesus. He warns you, he warns me, because he loves us. Maybe it is that you've been coming to church for many years and you haven't made that decision to turn away from sin, to turn back to Christ. Well, why not do that this morning? Jesus came, he lived, he died on the cross for your sins, and he welcomes you to a feast in heaven with the Father. Maybe it is that you have trusted in Jesus, But there's just an area of your life that you know this morning that Jesus is not Lord of. Well, Jesus says, repent. And if you have repented, then keep repenting. Keep repenting. Jesus draws a comparison and Jesus gives a warning. And the reason he does it is because he loves us. And so this morning, hear what Jesus says to you and turn back to him. Let's pray as we finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you say things to us uh, that we need to hear. And we thank you, Lord, that the reason you say them to us is because you love us. Lord, we thank you that you came eating and drinking, and you came inviting people to the most wonderful feast, the most wonderful party with God in heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your works, your deeds, and to respond rightly to who you are. Lord, give us the grace to repent of the sins that would keep us from you, and as we turn back to you afresh this morning, Lord, would you help us to know the joy and the, um, the peace that comes with being in relationship with you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.